Welcome back to The Law with D.K. Williams. I am indeed D.K. Williams, and this is The Law with me, D.K. Williams. We are brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network. As always, launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Now, we just had Constitution Day uh, on Monday, September 17th. And in recognition of that, remember, the Constitution was not written to restrain your behavior or anyone individual's behavior. It was written to restrain the federal government's behavior. It does not grant a single right to you or to anyone else. It is written to keep the federal government from violating all of your rights that you have because you were born. And when you think about it, that is basically the principle of self-ownership. You own you. The government has no right, does not have the legitimate authority to infringe upon your self-ownership. It ties in with the NAP as well, the non-aggression principle, for those of you who are not familiar with that cute acronym. So the non-aggression principle says that the initiation of force is immoral. So you cannot initiate force against someone else. You cannot go hit them. The government cannot come hit you or an agent of the government because the government's nothing but other individuals who are bestowed authority by the government. They're just another individual. Cop is just another person. An FBI agent is just another person. A Bureau of Land Management agent is just another person. Yet, the government, quote, I'm making air quotes here, has given them authority. They've given them a badge, they've given them a gun, and they're paying them to exercise the government's power. But it's just another individual. And, of course, the government, over the years, has created all kinds of rules and doctrines and ideas and statutes that protect the government from the bad stuff it does. And we're going to talk about one of those today. We're going to talk about this idea, this doctrine known as qualified immunity. Now, David French has a great article in National Review about this doctrine. It just came out last week. I recommend y'all check it out. Just Google David French National Review qualified immunity and the article will come up. It's really good. It's got a lot of other references, a lot of other sites do other articles and other cases that have dealt with this. So you can learn a lot and I recommend you do it. One of the reasons this idea is in the news right now is because of what happened in Dallas on September 13th when Amber Geiger, who was a Dallas Police Department officer, walked into the wrong apartment, shot the guy who lived there, Botham Jean, who was 26, she was 30, eventually arrested and charged with manslaughter. Took three days after she killed this guy. The doctrine of qualified immunity comes into play in cases like this in a civil action. Of course, nothing's going to help the dead guy, right? But his family generally have a cause of action when someone is wrongfully killed. It's a wrongful death lawsuit in tort. But qualified immunity is used by law officers and other people in the government to avoid responsibility for their bad acts. And we're going to get into where this doctrine comes from. Judges created it. The Supreme Court created this this idea. But back to this particular case where the young man was, was killed in his own apartment by a Dallas police officer. Why wasn't the officer charged with murder? She was charged with manslaughter. So let's talk about this first as a kind of a background um, uh, information. There's different types of homicide. And homicide is kind of a generic term. It means any killing of another person by a person. It can be in self-defense. It can be an accident. It can be a professional hit. Homicide has nothing to do with the level of culpability of the person responsible for the death. One of the first things you learn in law school, your first year criminal law class, you get introduced to this idea, this concept of a mens rea. Of course, you go to law school so you can learn foreign languages, right? So you can sound smarter than other people. But mens rea is the state of mind of the person who commits an act. Now, a criminal act has to have an act and a culpable state of mind. 
You can kill somebody, even on purpose, and not be criminally culpable. For example, self-defense or defense of someone else, right? You can intentionally kill somebody, but you did not have a guilty state of mind. The NAP, the non-aggression principle, plays into this, right? Because you're not initiating the force if you defend yourself or if you defend someone else. Someone else has initiated the force, and you have the right to defend yourself and to defend someone else. And as a quick aside, it must be an imminent threat as a legal matter. Now, I know some people have different philosophical beliefs on this, but as a legal matter, if someone has threatened to kill you, you don't have the right to kill that person unless they are posing an imminent threat to you. Even if they said, hey, buddy, I'm going to kill you. And let's say they've tried before and they failed. Now, then a week later, you see that person sitting quietly on a park bench. Okay, they're not an imminent threat to you. You cannot, under the law, as it is in the United States, and I think it should be, you cannot walk up to that person from behind and shoot him in the head, even though he's threatened you, even though he's tried before, because he is not in an imminent position of harming you. That's not self-defense. The bad guy did not pose an imminent threat. He wasn't pointing a gun at you. Which brings me to Star Wars, as a quick aside. In A New Hope, we all know Han Solo shot first, and in that case, he was completely justified. Boba Fett was pointing a gun at him. That is an imminent threat. Han was under no legal obligation applying American law, because I don't know what the law is on most Eisley. In American law, he had no duty, no legal responsibility to wait until Boba Fett shot first as George Lucas changed. That would be an absurd result. For one thing, you've got a guy sitting, how far is Boba Fett away from Han Solo? Three feet, maybe? And he's a professional bounty hunter, right? He's supposed to know how to use his, his gun, whatever kind of gun he had. And just as a theatrical decision, changing that scene is completely unbelievable. Boba Fett is a professional bounty hunter. We're supposed to believe he missed that point-to-blank shot sitting across the table from Solo. I mean, I can buy light speed travel and the Force and the giant slug-like creatures who run organized crime in the galaxy, but missing that shot, that just defies credulity. Now, while I'm on it quickly, Spielberg did something like that in E.T. Chasing E.T. at the end of the movie, the original version had the, the federal agents carrying guns. Now, in the re-release, Spielberg digitally altered the guns so they were flashlights. Why would you do that, Spielberg? Is that because you don't want to acknowledge that government agents carry guns? They don't shoot at people or aliens? It's like the progressive notion that the government is benevolent, that they only do things that are good for the public, the common good, the collective. So, let's hide those guns. Guns are ugly. Sure, they'll use them, but let's not dwell on that. Let's pretend they're flashlights. And this creative choice, both of these choices, when they redid these scenes, they illustrate the inherent conflict in progressive thought. On the one hand, cops are racist and violent. On the other hand, only cops should have guns. If people have guns, who knows what might happen? I mean, heck, some guy might walk into the wrong apartment and kill someone. Wait a minute, that, that, that was a cop. And that cop, in this particular case, was charged with manslaughter. So let's talk about the, the why manslaughter, at least as a, as a legal matter, how it is different than first-degree murder, second-degree murder, and other types of homicide that you can be criminally charged with. So there are four basic types of mens rea, culpable mind. One is intent, one is knowledge, one is recklessness, and one is negligence. If you do it intentionally and with deliberation, that's first-degree murder. So you have to act intentionally, knowing that your action will cause a certain result. In other words, the defendant undertakes an action intending or hoping that a certain result will follow. If you don't have the intent, but you have the knowledge, it's slightly less of a culpable crime. So knowledge means you act knowingly and you're aware that your conduct will result in a certain consequence. In other words, you'll know that a practically certain result will happen based upon what you do. If you saw Narcos, the first season on Netflix with Pablo Escobar, there was one particular guy he wanted to kill. 
And the way he did this, and this apparently happened in real life, he put a bomb on an airplane with a full, like 100 people on it. And he intentionally wanted to kill one guy. Plane takes off, the bomb goes off, and he succeeded in intentionally killing the one guy. So that's first degree murder. The other ones, he had knowledge that they were going to die, but he didn't really intend to kill them. But he knew it would happen. So if you can see the difference there, probably not that big a difference as a practical matter, but as a legal matter, it is a difference. One step below knowledge. So you got intent on top, you got knowledge second, and then you got recklessness. You act recklessly if you're aware of a substantial risk that your acts will have a certain result. For example, if you shoot into somebody's house, you might not intend to kill anybody. You might not have knowledge that you're going to kill somebody, but that's pretty reckless. And you know that there is a substantial risk that someone will be shot and killed. So that's recklessness. Now, negligence is when a person acts in a way that they should have been aware had an unjustifiable risk behind it. Maybe an example of that is if you're taking shooting practice outside somewhere, you found a good spot with a bank, you're shooting into the bank, you hit the target, then your bullet goes into the bank behind it, the big dirt bank, but you didn't check what was behind that bank. And let's say there's a house behind that bank or a road behind that bank, and then you accidentally overshoot your target, overshoot the bank, and hit somebody. That's negligence because you didn't mean to do it, you weren't sure you were going to do it, you weren't reckless about it, but you were negligent about it. So that's a, another level of culpability of mens rea in the legal framework. Now, negligence negligence is also a tort concept. You deal with that all the time in malpractice or car wrecks. In that context, it's not a criminal matter, but negligence is when someone fails to act as a reasonable person under a given set of circumstances. For example, if you're driving and you see a red light or there's a red light in front of you and you don't see it and someone is parked at the red light and you're not paying attention and you run into them, you have not acted as a reasonable person. You have been negligent. So you are, have a tort action against you for the damage you caused. So one more example of the difference between the exact same result and how one can be a criminal violation and, another, and the exact same thing isn't in another situation. So if you go out in your car and you say, that son of a bitch, I'm gonna find, I know where he's gonna be, I'm gonna find him and I'm gonna run him over with my car. So you've got intent, you know what you're doing, you intend and you know you're gonna hurt somebody and kill them, that's your idea. So you go out and do that, that's first degree murder. But if you're driving down a road completely minding your own business, looking everywhere you're going, you're driving the speed limit, and somebody all of a sudden runs out from behind of a, say, a, a parked truck, and you couldn't see them. There's no way you could have seen them. They just all of a sudden dart in front of you, and you run over them and kill them. You've got the same acts of driving over somebody with a car that results in a death. The first one is first-degree murder. The second one, you have absolutely no culpability whatsoever. So that's how the act and the mens rea, the state of mind, both have to come together for a crime. So by way of example, in Colorado, you've got murder in the first degree. I could give you these sites if you want them. Just for example, murder in the first degree is section 18-3-102. You commit first degree murder if you intend to kill someone and you do after deliberation, which means you have to think about it. That can get kind of dicey about what that means, but at least that's the idea, right? Murder in the second degree is if you kill someone on purpose without deliberation, without thinking about it too long. And in the statutes in Colorado, and every state has got something similar to this, after deliberation means not only an intentional act, but also that the decision to commit the act was made after reflection and judgment concerning the act. And in the statute it says, an act committed after deliberation is never one which has been committed in a hasty or impulsive manner. The classic example of this 
you know, when you learn in law school again, is if you walk home, find your significant under, in flagrante delecto, you happen to have a gun nearby, and you shoot one or both of them. You didn't think about it, you just did it on impulse. While you're still guilty of murder, it's second degree and not first degree because you didn't think about it. You didn't deliberate about it. And in Colorado, manslaughter is if you recklessly cause the death of another person. That's a class four felony. There's also criminally negligent homicide, which means if you are acting negligently in such a way that you result that it results in the death of someone, criminal homicide, class five felony. And they've also got a separate one for vehicular homicide, which is the longest statute of all of these because they created it later, right? And as legislators get more and more uh, involved, they come up with more and more reasons and more and more factors and more and more things for a jury to consider, more and more ways to complicate the criminal law. So if you kill someone by recklessly operating your vehicle, that's a class four felony, unless you're under the influence of drugs or alcohol, and then it becomes a class three felony. And it doesn't matter what your intentions were or anything is a strict liability crime, which means just the fact that you did it, you did the certain things listed, you kill somebody with a car and you were under the influence, boom, that's all it takes. That's a strict liability crime, class three felony. And of course, there's one more. They made a special provision for, quote, first degree murder of a peace officer, firefighter, or emergency medical service provider. Because, of course, those types of people are more important than the rest of us, right? So I don't know the Texas statutes that apply to the shooting down there by the police officer, but you get the idea. You get the idea between first, second degree murder and manslaughter. So no matter what happens in that criminal case, there'll probably be a civil lawsuit. And that brings us back to qualified immunity. Now, I mentioned that David French article, and he's got another example in that article. And if you, there, there's just hundreds of these that defined. But in 2012, there was a young man named Andrew Scott. And again, this is David French's example. He was at home. It was late at night. He's with his girlfriend. They're playing video games. They heard a loud pounding at the door. That would be alarming. Scott was alarmed. He grabbed his pistol, which he legally owned, and opened the door. When he opened the door, he saw a man crouching outside in the darkness. Scott backed up into his apartment, still had his gun at his side, pointing down at the ground. The crouching figure almost immediately fired his weapon. The encounter was over in seconds. Scott was dead. The other guy who fired, the guy waiting in the hallway who had pounded on the door, was a police officer. Police officer at the wrong apartment. Andrew Scott, completely innocent man, done nothing more than exercise his constitutional right to keep and bear arms in defense of his home. Again, this is David French's article. Um, that, that part was a quote. The officer not only was at the wrong house, he didn't have a search warrant for the correct house. He had not turned on any lights in his vehicle when he got there. He did not identify himself as a police officer when he pounded on the door. The officer was never prosecuted criminally. The state ruled that the shooting was justified. Of course, right? That's what they always do. The state said that the police officer had no obligation to identify himself. And then here comes the civil suit. The court threw it out. This is in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, affirmed the dismissal because of qualified immunity. The concept of qualified immunity comes from a very old statute. It's not actually in the statute, but that's the starting point. And then judges added this to it. 42 U.S. Code 1983. And you may have heard of 1983 actions. That is a statute whereby you are suing the government for a violation of your constitutional rights. And this was passed in 1871, right? This is not a new thing. And what it says in pertinent part is that every person, remember every person, who under any color of statute, which means acting pursuant to a statute or another law, subjects or causes to be subjected any citizen of the U.S. or other person to the deprivation of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution shall be liable to the injured party. Every person acting under the auspices of the law, like a law officer, deprive somebody else of their rights, like the right to be alive, shall be liable 
to the party injured. Pretty clear, right? Well, not to the judges. Again, from French's article, he references a case known as Harlow versus Fitzgerald, which I did read, remember? That's my rule. If I'm going to talk about a case, I've read it. Harlow v. Fitzgerald, they concocted, the Supreme Court concocted this definition or this concept of qualified immunity. This is from the case itself, this language. And I'll get back to this, but just this part really just should strike all of us with disgust because the court designed this idea because they wanted to encourage, quote, the vigorous exercise of official authority, end quote. Is there a more frightening concept than that of encouraging the vigorous exercise of official authority? What would Jefferson think of that idea? Sam Adams, even Hamilton would probably disagree with that. He'd probably cringe at that phrase, especially in light of Section 1983, which gives people a statutory remedy for when their rights have been violated by a police officer or any government agent. And the thing about this decision, it was an eight to one decision. And when I first saw that it was eight to one, I'm like, well, at least one guy opposed it. But (laughs) that's why you have to read these things because the one was Chief Justice Warren Burger, and he didn't think the eight went far enough. So even though he disagreed with them and he dissented in this case, he wasn't on the right side. He thought he wanted them to go even further with this idea of immunity. He wanted more absolute immunity, not just qualified immunity. But listen to the, who were these people? Who were the justices on this opinion? Powell wrote the decision. Brennan, who's a liberal hero, concurred, joined in the opinion. Byron White joined, a Republican, Colorado's own. Byron Wizard White played professional football and at the University of Colorado. Thurgood Marshall, a liberal hero. Harry Blackman, Rehnquist who's Kavanaugh's hero, by the way. I've written about that. Check it out on bluecarp.net. Stevens and O'Connor. Sandra O'Connor, a Reagan nominee. All eight of these people concocted this notion of qualified immunity to keep government agents from being liable for their actions. Now, Harlow wasn't about cops. Harlow was about two guys in the federal government during the Nixon years, Nixon administration, who had been fired. They said they were wrongfully fired. They sued some aides of Nixon in the White House for an alleged conspiracy to deprive them of their job illegally. Now, these guys sued Nixon also, but they were cases were separated. And what the Supreme Court said in the Harlow decision, they referenced the Nixon decision because they were going through the courts at the same time and they decided the Nixon case the same day. But in the Harlow case, the Supreme Court said, our decisions consistently have held that government officials are entitled to some form of immunity from suits for damages. As recognized at common law, public officers require this protection to shield them from undue interference with their duties and from potentially disabling threats of liability. Got to protect the government agents, man. They do something wrong. We don't want the allegations of wrongdoing to stop them from vigorously exercising their authority. Man, what kind of totalitarian nonsense is this? Now, here's an important part about this quote. They reference common law that there were protections of government agents. But statutes change common law. Section 1983 changed the common law. That's kind of the point of passing a statute. The Supreme Court goes on. They talk about absolute immunity and they talk about qualified immunity. Absolute immunity includes legislators in their legislative function. So whatever they say while they're in the well of the Senate, they have absolute immunity from defamation, for example. Same thing with a judge on the bench. No matter what he says, he has absolute immunity for what he says on the bench. These are just some examples. The Supreme Court said, quote, our decisions have also extended absolute immunity to certain officials of the executive branch. These include prosecutors and similar officials. Hey, right, of course, let's protect those guys. But there is good news that go on to say, for executive officials in general, however, our cases make plain that qualified immunity represents the norm. So we're not going to give them absolute immunity, just qualified immunity. Awesome, right? 
They go on to explain, quote, the recognition of a qualified immunity defense for high executives, like the president, reflects an attempt to balance competing values. This is the court, the Supreme Court, ready? Not only the importance of a damages remedy to protect the rights of citizens, yeah, right? But also the need to protect officials who are required to exercise their discretion and the related public interest in encouraging the vigorous exercise of official authority. That's what I referenced earlier. Again, that's straight out of a totalitarian nightmare. It makes Orwell look like an optimist. And again, an 8-1 decision, and the one didn't think they went far enough. The court goes on. Not only are there the general costs of subjecting officials to the risks of trial, distraction of officials from their government duties, inhibition of discretionary action, and deterrence of able people from public service. So these are the reasons the Supreme Court is saying that we have to protect government agents from the, some of the bad things they might do, right? So what they're saying is, in, eth- in essence, if the cops are subject to a trial or any other, any other government officials that qualify for qualified immunity, they might be distracted from their duties. They don't want that to happen. But heaven forbid the threat of a lawsuit keeps someone from shooting someone else in their own house. I mean, that, that, it's, it's absurd, but that's where we are in the state of this country right now. The Supreme Court is worried that government agents' discretion might be inhibited. Good, some discretion needs to be inhibited. And the piece de resistance from the Supreme Court, we therefore hold that government officials performing discretionary functions generally are shielded from liability for civil damages insofar as their conduct does not violate clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. Would a reasonable person know you shouldn't shoot somebody in their own house? That's pretty much where we are, where the court says, nope, no, we can't say that. So we're going to protect the police officer in this situation. Qualified immunity, you have no claim. The cop is not subject to criminal liability. He's not subject to civil liability. The court tried to kind of head this off by saying, quote, by defining the limits of qualified immunity, essentially in objective terms, we provide no license to lawless conduct. End quote. Yeah, well, you about have. That's been the effect of it. You about have given license to lawless conduct. Back to French's article, he talks about this in a recent concurrence by a Fifth Circuit judge named Don Willett. He sees how ridiculous this idea of qualified immunity is. And in this recent concurrence, and again, the link is in French's article, Judge Willett says, to some observers, qualified immunity smacks of unqualified impunity. I like that. Letting public officials duck consequences for bad behavior, no matter how palpably unreasonable, as long as they were the first to behave badly. Merely proving a constitutional deprivation doesn't cut it. Plaintiffs must cite functionally identical precedent that places the legal question beyond debate to every reasonable officer. Put differently, it's immaterial that someone acts unconstitutionally if no prior case held such misconduct unlawful. End of that quote from Judge Willett. That's what it's turned into. That's what it has become. In that particular case, there was an amicus brief filed by, get this, these are the different people all on the same side of this issue. The Alliance Defending Freedom, the ACLU, the Second Amendment Foundation, the Reason Foundation, the National Police Accountability Project, and Public Justice were all on the side of rolling, reining in this qualified immunity concept. And in that amicus brief, they wrote, Qualified immunity denies justice to victims of unconstitutional misconduct. It imposes cost-prohibitive burdens on civil rights litigants, and it harms the very public officials it seeks to protect. And French follows up that by talking about Section 1983. 
It is designed to protect citizens and help them secure their rights. It is not designed to protect, we're going to quote the Supreme Court again, the vigorous exercise of official authority. It was passed to restrain that authority. So the Supreme Court, in French's words, have defied Congress and French's right. Quoting French again, the Supreme Court has granted lawless officials countless free passes for unconstitutional behavior. According to French, however, Justice Clarence Thomas and Sotomayor have started to express some displeasure with this doctrine. Again, that's a good diverse ideological partnership, right? And that amicus brief with all those ideological different groups trying to rein in this idea of qualified immunity have a powerful quote from Marbury v. Madison. And if you remember, that's what we talked about last week was Marbury v. Madison. The amicus brief says, The very essence of civil liberty certainly consists in the right of every individual to claim the protection of the laws whenever he receives an injury. Indeed, quote, one of the first duties of government is to afford that protection. End quote. And almost nobody knows anything about this judicially created concept of qualified immunity. It protects government agents and law enforcement officials or government agents from the damage they do despite a, congr a congressional statute that is supposed to make them liable. Next time you have a chance, ask a political candidate or someone in elected office right now if they think qualified immunity should be reined in by either the courts or legislatures. I bet you dimes to a Danish, they're not going to have any idea what you're talking about. They might stumble through an answer, but if they're honest, they'll admit they don't know and they'll have to get back to you on that. And that is okay because follow up with them. Press them on it. Call their offices in three days after you ask them and see if they followed up on it. Send them an email. Blog about it. Call them out on this. Now, I've heard some people suggest that civil liability of law enforcement abuse should come out of police retirement funds. And that idea has a certain quality to it. And that would stop it. But I don't think that's going to work. There are several multiple, several, there are multiple legal issues to address with that idea. But the idea is addressing the point that there are civil liability uh, cases that police lose all the time. Denver, right here in Denver, they, they lose them frequently. You hear about you know somebody being wrongfully killed in the jail or wrongfully allowed to die. It happens in big cities all the time. You look up New York's budget for paying off civil lawsuits based on police misconduct. So it does happen, but that qualified immunity protects a whole hell of a lot more of their bad conduct. And of course, when the a police department has to pay a settlement or a verdict of, let's just say a million dollars, and sometimes it's a lot more than that, the police don't pay it, the city pays it. So your taxpayer money or taxpayer money is paying this verdict or this judgment or this settlement. So where is the incentive to not be held liable for it. There's no monetary incentive because you're not paying for it. The police aren't paying for it. The taxpayers are paying for it. If a private business kills someone, the shareholders pay. And the shareholders are not going to tolerate that because it costs them money. So we can hear these democratic socialists condemn capitalism all they want. But when the government kills someone or hurts them in some way, they don't pay. You do. But if a Walmart truck runs over somebody, you don't pay. Walmart does. Their shareholders do, and they're not going to put up with that for very long. Now, yes, Walmart's got insurance, but they got that on an open market. And if they have too many accidents, they have to pay a higher premium. Insurance premiums go up. The shareholders have to pay for it, and they're not going to tolerate it for very long. That doesn't happen when a cops accidentally kill somebody. Again, municipalities often do have insurance, but what happens if their insurance rates goes up? You pay for it. Taxpayers pay for it. And with qualified immunity, they aren't even liable for the damages they frequently cause. It irritates me when people indignantly declare that government is fairer or more benevolent than profit-seeking evil corporations because that's nonsense. Corporations pay for their mistakes. Governments do not. When government makes a mistake, you pay for it. That's not fair. It's not benevolent. 
it absolves those at fault from the consequences of their bad actions. That's the opposite of capitalism. Government is malevolent. But what should we expect from generations of people educated by the state? Of course they think is the state is awesome, but it's not. Criticize private industry all you want. They make mistakes. They do things that cause problems. But don't kid yourself that government is benevolent. Read a history book to disabuse yourself of that notion. But the state controls those books too, don't they? At least the ones in the schools. One thing I do think would work, however, is to require law enforcement officers to have personal insurance for their misconduct. So it won't be the city paying for it. They would have to be personally insured. If they screw up, they do something bad, they kill somebody, some innocent person, the insurance will pay. But the cop hurts too many people, his insurance premiums will go up or he will become uninsurable. They go up too much. It won't make financial sense for him or the police department that's hiring him to let him continue in law enforcement. You hear every now and then about some cop who got fired in some jurisdiction and then got another job somewhere else. If he's got to pay for his own insurance premiums, and even if he gets reimbursed for it, it's still a financial cost that's directly tied to his conduct, his misconduct, his bad actions that we don't have now. So that would be a better situation, a better process than currently exists. To wrap it up, qualified immunity, another judicially created doctrine that protects the government from the consequences of the actions of its agents. When the Supreme Court or other courts decide the limits of what is legal or illegal for the government to do, and when the government will be held responsible, it routinely rules in favor of the government. Of course they do, so the Supreme Court and other judges are the government. It's like if the NBA let the Lakers call their own fouls against the Nuggets. Even if the Lakers genuinely intended to be fair, what's going to happen? They're going to call more fouls against the Nuggets. They're not going to call very many fouls against themselves, even if they're trying to be honest. That's just the way human nature is. This is another example of why states need to stand up to the federal government. States need to reclaim the authority usurped from them by the feds, the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches of the federal government. The states need to say, no guys, that's not legitimate. You have 17 or 18, depending on how you count them, enumerated powers in Article 1, Section 8, and we're not going to let you do things that are outside of those enumerated powers. We're going to ignore it, we won't let you enforce it, and we won't pay for it. That's what we need to do. The Constitution has to be enforced by all all parties to it, the three federal branches, the states themselves, and yes, individuals, you. If you get on a jury, nullify any immoral or unconstitutional law. Listen to your conscience, not what the state tells you to do. The judge isn't any more American than you are. The legislature that passed the law isn't either. The cops and the DA aren't either. Jefferson mentioned that about judges and how they're just like any other human being when he was talking about the Alien and Sedition Acts and who gets to determine what's constitutional and what's not. Assert your authority as an American. Do not let the Leviathan crush you. This country was founded on the concept of refusing to obey unjust laws and an unjust government power. This is not a dangerous concept. Don't let people freak out about, oh my goodness, people are going to start nullifying murders and assaults and deaths. There's not going to be an epidemic of juries doing that because those are just laws. People understand it. Trust individuals, trust yourself. But there should be an epidemic of nullification against the unlawful, the immoral, and the unconstitutional assertion of government power over you and your fellow Americans. Be aware, exercise those rights, do not roll over. Fight qualified immunity. Read that David French article. Educate yourself about it. Ask your government representatives about it. Ask people running for office about it. Put them on the spot. Make them answer questions. Make them learn what it is. And that's how it starts. As Sam Adams said, it does not take a majority to prevail, but rather an irate, tireless minority, keen on setting brush fires of freedom in the minds of men. Keep those brush fires burning. 
hold their feet to the fire. I'm DK Williams, and this has been The Law with me, DK Williams. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And remember, freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.